Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Subrays, a show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. This show is brought to you by Priya Pickups. What you want, what you need, what you love. Check them out at priapickups.com. The show is also brought to you by Storyfora, the writing services and content agency that provides people with communication solutions of all sorts for writing services of any type. Go to Storyfora. That's P-H-O-R-A, Storyfora.com. All right, he is back, my friends. The legendary Rick Emmett joins me on this episode to talk about his new book called Lay It on the Line. As we typically do, we recorded this episode and the next one live from the music room of Rick's home. And as usual, there were lots of laughs, great insights, and rich conversation. Compliments of Mr. Emmett. This is the first part of two of our chat, and it was a lot of fun to do. I hope you enjoy it. Here he is, Rick Emmett. <laughs> that was so cool. <laughs> that was just like, so I want to talk about that a little bit more. Okay. So I, on my way here, by the way, uh, it's fantastic to be back here, Rick. Thank you so much for welcoming me once again into your home. We're going to talk about where we are in a second, because this is a fantastic new room that I have not seen yet. Uh, but and doesn't it sound lovely? It's so great. We've got a nice big high ceiling. We've got lots of room. Yeah. Yeah. This it is looks. A, we, this is a we'll dream take, come true for me. This oh, place. It's yeah. unbelievable. It really is. When you walk in the door, it's, it almost takes your breath away. Literally, if you're, especially if you're a guitar fan. I know. Do you ever watch house porn? Like, do you ever watch shows yeah. like Escape to the Country? Always. Oh, I love that. Me too. Right. And they talk about the wow factor. And this yes. room, when you walk through the door into this room, you kind of go. Wow. Yeah, my mouth opened really fast. <laughs> I know. I yeah, like it. Great. Now, suitcase I own blues. it. <laughs> I own the wow factor. <laughs> you do. You definitely do. Uh, suitcase blues on my way. The, uh, yeah. You just reminded me of something very interesting that I'd been thinking about when I listened to that song. I, I was listening to it on the way over here in the car. And you did such a great job with it. And, and it's from the Just a Game record, which... Um, you know, Triumph was regarded as a, a hard rock, you know, in some circles, heavy metal band at that time. But for me, that was such a, a, a great little ending to that record. And, you know, you, we talked about before we started rolling here about like how much you enjoyed it and the guys in Triumph were gracious and, and let you put it on the end. But I always wondered when I heard that, did that confuse some people? Because you think about the U.S. Festival. Motley Crue, Scorpions, Ozzy Osbourne, Judas Priest, right? Yes. None of those bands could do something like that, really. Well, I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to be so, you know, hoity-toity as to say they couldn't. They didn't. Mm. And it, it might have been a choice. It might have been a, a you know, a, a conscious, premeditated kind of, no, I'm never going to go there. I'm not going to. I could, but I won't. Yeah. Um, but I liked bands that went, I'm going there, Yeah. you know, like I, because I liked the Beatles and the Beatles were a band where it was like, Hey, if I write, uh, you know, um, uh, I think Lennon at one point was being sarcastic about McCartney and sort of said, Oh, is he writing grandma songs? You know, <laughs> like, right. yeah, yeah, like something along those lines. But the thing is, I like grandma songs. Mm -hmm. I like teenage girl songs. I like, I, I like all kinds of songs if they're good. Right. You know, the only thing is that element of goodness, like who decides? Well, I decide. It's a subjective thing. We all decide what's good for mm -hmm. ourselves. Mm -hmm. And and for me, I had a very eclectic, liberal kind of taste. And the guys, the other guys in the band 
didn't have that. And certainly when they were envisioning what Triumph was going to be, you know, they saw it as this going to put on a giant show, going to be, you know, just rocking, you know, right. the, the whole time. We're just going to be a steamroller that we, you set it in motion and it doesn't stop. You know, when we did the album Rock and Roll Machine, that was really, I think, what Gil envisioned that the band was going to be. It was going to be a hard rock, rock and roll machine. Yes. And then Rick was sort of going to be the embodiment of the song Rock and Roll Machine is about me. It's about the rocket and playing guitar. So he sort of turned it into a Johnny B. Good kind of, you know, the guitar now becomes the rock and roll machine. The guy playing the guitar, he's the rock and roll machine. It's all being incorporated into one. But the Just a Game album was me saying, okay, now I want to try to make the band be more in my image, right. you know, yeah. uh, and this is how I perceive it, that we could be more progressive minded. There could be a little, we're going to push the envelope. We're going to be more like Led Zeppelin where we float and then we hammer, you know? Um, yeah. So suitcase was a thing where, because I had been, you know, a college guitar player, you know, studying at Humber and the influence of uh, Peter Harris, who was the guy that taught me there, but also, you know, Wes Montgomery and, and Tal Farlow and, you know, the, the list is endless, you know, mm -hmm. of, of guys that were influential. But Joe Pass was, you know, a very influential guitar player in my life. So uh, I, we were out on the road, uh, you know, and we would have been on the uh, Rock and Roll Machine record or, or in the States. And uh, I was in a hotel room and I had a book that Joe Pass had done guitar studies, 12 bar sort of jazz change kind of things. And I was working on one of these things and I went, you know, this you could easily kind of cobble together a song if you just stretched out this thing. Oh, if I put a little modulation in here, or if I if I took the uh, uh, out of the, the, the main key of F, if I went, well, I can go to D minor kind of for the bridge. Mm -hmm. So I had all of these, you know, little ideas that I was sketching out and then I, and I was a musician on the road. And, you know, when you're in a rock band and you've been on the road for your first two albums, just incessantly touring, you write songs about being on the bus and being in the hotel rooms yeah. and, you know, the chicks you meet and, the, you know, the, the characters that inhabit that world, you know, the road songs. Musicians write road songs because that's what they know oh, after yeah. their first couple of albums. So the third album is always going to have road songs. So it was a road song, Suitcase Blues, you know. We were talking earlier before we turned on the microphones about, uh, you know, the stuff that I'm working on lately. And I've just been writing little kind of, I'm not sure what they're going to be, essays, stories, poems, I'm not sure. But for this album, I'm doing 10 Telecaster tales. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the things I was working on this morning was the idea of a writer, uh, you know, a, a musician, a composer, whatever. And what you do is almost always autobiographical. Mm -hmm. because you're doing it. It's it's your ideas coming out of your head and, you know, spilling out onto the page or spilling out onto the guitar strings. It's you. But the other part of it is it's you trying to tie into something that's much bigger than that, that's that's much more universal than that, that's, you know, the, the stuff of Mother Nature, the stuff of the planet Earth, you know, the rhythms of life. And so... Suitcase was a tune where I was tying into a a, a, a bloodline, a lineage there, mm. you know, of jazz guitar playing and blues and, you know, 
where that could be a com- uh, it became a common language on a level that rock bands didn't know as you know as per your question they didn't go there right but in the jazz world you know later on in my life in 1987 i did a project where i worked with ed bickert the famous you know amazing maestro of of jazz guitar in canada it, that suitcase blues could be common ground for me and ed Yes. So that, you know, we could sit together and play the song, you know. So some of the greatest moments in my life came out of that song, which I used to play when I was on the road with Dave Dunlop. It was always the last song at the end of the encore because mm-hmm. it's kind of like instead of ending with a bang, you end up with this kind of you're softening down to this where everybody's going to listen and everybody's going to feel what it's like to be lonely after the lights have turned out and after you're back in the hotel room and like that's the other side of the of the picture and everybody can get that that's a human thing and that's an emotional thing and when you write you're always to me i was always looking for that i didn't care what style the music was or or whether or not i was fitting an image that might you know get onto t- television or you know, get me into a certain demographic of radio airplay. I was really just chasing that thing. And in essence, that's a microcosm of of your new book, really. This is a great (laughs) tie-in, isn't it? I guess, sure. I think so. I was saying to you earlier, you know, one of the things I love about your book is that it's a rock star biography that isn't really a rock star biography at all. And that's what makes it great. Yeah, I mean... uh, Obviously, I I read lots of other rock star biographies and memoirs and things and autobiographies and stuff just to try and get a sense of what I might try to achieve. And I liked the ones where there was storytelling. Mm -hmm. I liked that. But I also liked it when it felt like somebody wasn't necessarily so full of themselves that they were just deciding to tell you what they had in their day book and that was going to be you know a good enough that oh well you know the cash registers will ring because my face will be on the cover and you go well you know i'm gonna take all the time and effort to write a book here i'm gonna try and really write something you know so my life was about a lot more than just you know my rock star itinerary from the 70s and 80s you know yeah and you you said that to me earlier now Oh, I called the triumph chapter the triumph chapter. And it's only one of 25 or something like that. I can't remember how many there are. And I love that because it's one little chapter in a great big life. And that's really what this book is about. And I think that's what people will love about it. That's what I love about it. It's one little piece. You know, but the other thing too, Rick, is that people who are coming for the triumph stuff will not be disappointed. Because there's a lot of great Triumph stuff in there, too. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why you have editors and copy editors. And, you know, I have beta readers and, and folks that, you know, I had some people pour over that Triumph chapter more than a few times, <laughs> you know, just to make sure just that make sure. there wasn't anything that somebody might sue me for later. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, I mean, you know, and I, I mentioned this to you earlier, too. I, I was a college teacher, so I understand about lesson plans and curriculum and, you know, a narrative. How do you build something that, you know, is going to carry you over an 11 week program and, and through a, you know, a, a final exam? A book has to have a kind of a narrative reason for being, mm-hmm. you know. And in my case, I had been a college teacher, a father, uh, a husband, uh, 
a guy in a rock band, yeah, but a guy in my own leader of my own band, and then you know a guy that was in duos and guitar trios that went across the country on tour, and like I did lots of different things, and so the book was going to have to touch on a lot of different things and how what was going to tie it all together, you know, what was going to make it hang as as a, as a decent read, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, you know, I feel good about it. I think. I think in the end, um, I, I can be proud of the, th- like in my mind, I think, well, what are my grandkids, you know, I go, what about my grandkids' kids? Will they, would anybody bother to pick up the book? And if they did, would they go, huh, great grandpa, what a crazy guy he was, you know, or yeah. what an interesting guy he was, or he had a story to tell and he, and he told it well, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's what I would hope, you know? Yeah. It's funny that you say that because just yesterday I was on a podcast and I the roles were reversed. I was the guest and I was talking about my first book. And I said probably one of the best things about writing a book is that you're guaranteeing yourself some measure of immortality. Yeah. There, right? That's well, that's your legacy. If. Yeah. If if people buy it, <laughs> you know, your immortality might be you're in the cutout bin, you know. <laughs> Which, you know, I've I've been there, you know, where you, you get your CD and it's got a hole drilled through the corner of the plastic, you know. You, yeah, okay. You know. Yeah, I, you know, here's a funny story. There was a guy named uh, Shan Kelly who worked at EMI, yep. Capital Canada. And uh, I'd made a, a label deal there. And so I went there and, and Dean Cameron at the time was the uh, president of the company. But the record business was already in big trouble. Mm-hmm. Like it was already, you know. They were making uh, uh, label deals left and right just to get stuff that they could put out and put into the catalog and, and push out into the market. And they didn't have to pay because you were going to pay. They, you know, a label deal, you're going to, you know, they're going to be recovering all of their money. Mm-hmm. So he's walking me around and he's showing me the place. And we go out into the warehouse and we're walking around. And he goes, Would you like to see who works here 24 hours a day, seven days a week? And I went, yeah, the what? And he goes, right on over here. And he shows me. And there's this giant garbage bin that's outside. And there's this thing that's inside with a chute that runs out. And he goes, that's the grinder. We just throw the plastic in there. No. <laughs> and it grinds it up and it spits it out. He goes, that's working all the time now. And I go, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so that was an insight into the music business. That it was like, yeah, because, you know, you manufacture it up and out it goes, but doesn't necessarily mean it's selling or in your, in the case of your story, it doesn't necessarily mean a book is being read, you know, like, yeah, you wrote it. Okay. It's on a shelf somewhere, but are you going to be able to convince people to take it down and give it a read? That's right. Yeah, That's the hard part. (laughs) (laughs) Thus, marketing and promotion, which are much bigger monsters than, you know. You and I as book writers. Indeed. Yeah. Now, we're going to get into that in a second, but it's worth noting one more thing I wanted to talk about is that when you, you tend to read these books, you see, uh, you know, in your case, it would be Rick Emmett with Neil Strauss or with, you know, a, a, a writing assistant of some sort. You don't have that. I've written or I've, I've read rather a lot of, of rock books and there's always, it, you know, it often doesn't matter who it is. There's always, a, you know, a, a helper, a ghostwriter of sorts. You don't have that. And you did such a great job. You know, I saw that and I thought, okay, how's this going to be? I'd read your poetry book and I really enjoyed it. But it's visceral. 
it's wistful, it's sentimental, it's funny, it's educational. It's a powerful book. And I know wow, that. Thank you. you know, yeah, you're, you're, my God, know, you're making me blush. Well, you're, you're a humble guy, I know. But I, it, it's worth noting that. Well, I, I I really appreciate that you know you're taking the time to do it here in our little talk. <laughs> you, uh, uh, you know, it's lovely to hear. You know, it's what I was aiming for. It's it's what I hoped for. You mm-hmm. know, and uh, I hope that 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 kind of uh, emotional connection. Which is, you know, when you're making music, that's what you're hoping to do. Mm-hmm. You know, an intellectual c- connection, an emotional connection. A memoir can be an opportunity to, to to make those kinds of things happen. You know, so I was I was shooting for that, mm-hmm. and of course, I always felt like writing was as much my like. The, I think the book makes this pretty clear that my calling is creativity. And so it doesn't really matter to me what the task is. Like, we're going to write a book. Oh, we're going to paint a painting. Oh, we're going to design an album cover. Oh, we're going to write a song. Oh, we're going to put together a symphony orchestra. Oh, you know, I'm going to design a guitar. I'm going to... To me, it's the creative act that's the thing that I find compelling. So even when I was, you know, teaching school and it was like, okay, you got to come up with a curriculum. I'd go, okay. I'll chew into that with, you know, both mandibles. <laughs> Let's go for it, you know. Um, I like to have something where I can be creative. And I chafe when that's the thing that starts to bleed out of it. Mm. So, you know, I mean, people could look at my life and go, well, they didn't really. He, he quit the band he was in. You go, yeah, but you know that creatively, it had kind of run its course for me. Right. It had been everything that it could be. I needed to move on to other challenges, you know. And too much in this world, and this is going sort of back to your question about memoirs and ghostwriters and all of that. Mm-hmm. It becomes this this uh, economic kind of equation, you know, where somebody goes, okay, well, you got it's got to be a good book. It's got to be well written. We'll get a writer to write it. So. Just interview the guy and, you know, and we'll transcribe the, the, the things. Now, having said that, I think Springsteen's memoir was a good one. He, I think he did write it. I think he is the, I think Bruce Springsteen, and I'm not trying to elevate myself here. I'm just saying, I think he is also the kind of guy that goes, all right, a creative thing. I'm going to. I could see that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to bite into this and, you know suck all the juice right out of it if I can. Mm-hmm. Like, I think he's that kind of guy. And when I read his one, I went, oh, you know. Whereas Keith Richards, I go, hmm. And I, it was big. It sure made a great doorstop. <laughs> you know? But, uh, you know, and I, since we're going to slog a few people, why not go for it? <laughs> the, my, the most disappointing one for me was the Clapton one. Didn't I just it. felt like it. he didn't even – give you any insight into the things I'm going, Oh man, I really want to know, you know, when cream broke up, like, what was it like when that was happening? What was the shit that was going down? Nothing, you know? And then, Oh, he was a drug addict. And he, it happened on more than one occasion where his drugs got in the way of, you know, relationships and bands and nothing like mm. nothing. I learned more about Eric Clapton from the Ronnie Wood, oh. you know, biography memoir than I did from the, and I go, well, that's not right. Come on, you know. If you think about it, Clapton is the kind of guy that, would, like, when you see him on stage, he, he kind of plays it safe. You know, he doesn't really, he's a gentleman. He doesn't really step outside of himself. 
he he's a reserved kind of performer. He doesn't make those like he doesn't make anywhere near the weird guitar faces that Joe Walsh makes, for right. example. You know, Joe yeah. Walsh and I we're from the school of hey, we're <laughs> going to act like crazy gorillas in the mist. <laughs> you know, whereas you know, Clapton is very you know contained, and so maybe it's no surprise that his biography kind of felt like oh he's he's making sure that he errs on the side of you know being diplomatic or being you know. Um, careful mm-hmm. not saying anything that might hurt someone mm. and of course he's he's been through a lot of pain in his life and and so there there may be that like good reasons for him to 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 be cautious in that regard me on the other hand <laughs> <laughs> well that, that that was the thing I, you know in the triumph chapter you t- you told your side of the story very diplomatically without it turning into the, a, a mud raking exercise, really, right? Yeah, and I, I, I intentionally so. I, I had a friend, Terrence Young, Terrence Hart Young, who did a lot of uh, reads of that chapter for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were moments where he would be sitting there saying to me, Rick, you, you can't say this. You, you, they'll never talk to you again. Really? <laughs> you know, yeah. And I went, okay, no, I, I, I can see that. And he would say, look, you know, even when... It, when it went bad, what it's going bad over is that one guy wants the band to be what he wants it to be, and you want the band to be what you want it to be. Mm-hmm. You both want the same thing. They're just different things, but it's the same thing. You've got to respect the fact that really that's that's what you're talking about here. Mm-hmm. No matter how ugly it got or how terrible it was, you were both really, you know, still chasing the same thing. It was just you wanted it for yourself. Yeah. You know, there was a selfishness there. And, of course, the human equation boils down to this, really, in the end. We we go through life, and there's certain things that we want out of our lives for ourselves. We're, there's a selfishness in being human. But then the other side of it is, yeah, but then, you know, we have kids, or we, we get married, and we, and we join a band, and then now you're, oh, now it's... As I say in the book, the triumph thing was the musketeers, the three musketeers, you know, all for one and one for all. Now you're living for someone else mm-hmm. and you're you're in service to someone else. And that becomes a really important part of everyone's sense of virtue. Like, how do you decide that you will allocate your resources to be kind and generous? And certainly... You know, when you're in a rock band for, you know, 13 years, everybody is doing good things for each other. That's, mm-hmm. that was, that's part of the history of it, you know. And Terry would say to me, you got to remember that. When you have an old friend, read your book. You know, yeah. the guy that knew you when you were an idiot in grade 11, <laughs> you know, and goes and gives you that advice. You go, okay, that's good advice. Yes, thank you. You know, I will remember that. And I will leaven that chapter with that kind of spirit, I'll try to balance my, you know, my vice with my virtue, you know. That's fantastic perspective. You know, that it just occurred to me that somebody who knew you before you were Rick Emmett of Triumph, you know, saw you in both capacities. Yes. And is able to kind of, you know, quantify. I, but I, I saw that pretty early in my life. Like, mm. you know, as I became, uh, you know, a rock star, Rick is making air quotes. I could see the other rock stars that they kept moving on. 
Mm. They, they left their old life behind and now they were inhabiting this new life and it was everything. Oh, I'm going to marry that playboy playmate. I'm going to be doing these drugs. I'm going to be yeah. uh, buying this car. When I was a rock star, I was hanging out with my old high school buddies, mm -hmm. going and playing baseball and ball hockey with my brother. I was buying a house two blocks away from me from my parents, <laughs> you know, so yeah. that we would have built-in babysitting close at hand for the kids we were having, my wife and I, you know, my wife now of 47 years. That, that was the kind of guy that I was. I wasn't yeah. really... We were talking earlier. I just want to mention this for for your listeners. We had like a three hour chat earlier. Yeah, and 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 uh, yeah, Brent was telling me that you know when he was a high school kid, he was afraid to do drugs. True. <laughs> and, yeah, and I was too. You know, kind of. You know, not as afraid as he was. <laughs> <laughs> because maybe I had a little bit more rock star in me than you, you did. did. I don't know, but. You did. So uh, you know, there was a little bit of, you know, acid I might have dropped. <laughs> there was some hash oil I might have smoked. You know, yeah. I mean, I was not um, <laughs> I was not as pure as the driven snow by any means. But, uh, you know, that fear, I think, is it's not a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. So, yeah. anyways, I can't remember. Where were we, what were we talking Why was I no, raising I, this? What were we talking about? We were talking about... <laughs> rock star thing and and i wanted to touch on this because oh. this is something that occurred to me also in the book um you're very reluctant to refer to yourself as a rock star and i'm not surprised by that because i've never known you to be that type of person but it really makes a lot of sense when you think about it because when you listen to songs like fight the good fight for example you're not so much a rock star as you are almost a, a cheerleader and a, a, a kind of a, a motivator as it were yeah, you know, um, in my life, like when I was a kid in Cubs, mm -hmm. Wolf Cubs, yeah. I would end up being the sixer, the leader of the little group. Okay. You know, they, they would say, oh, this guy's got leadership potential, you know, in uh, Boy Scouts. I, I would often be the person that would be put in charge of something and to organize it, you know. And I think part of it is, ego and energy and, and skill set and communication skills, that kind of stuff. I would be shy initially in social circumstances, but once I got the lay of the land, mm -hmm. I was not averse to shooting my big mouth off, you know? <laughs> um, and sometimes that'd get me in trouble, but most of the time it was something where people went, Hey, this guy's got something to say. And Oh, that seems like that's good. You're like, when I was in, um, like, a church, I, I went to Sunday school, and um, my mom would make sure that I always attended until we had a very large schism when I was about 12, mm. 11, 12, 13, maybe. It was like, I'm never going again, you know. I, I, can't, I can't buy into this anymore, you know. Mm -hmm. But I can remember there was a, her name was Margaret Alsop. She was the woman that was sort of led the Sunday school for the, 12-year-olds or 13-year-olds at Runnymede United Church, where I went. And at one point, she sat me down and said, you know, I can really see this. Someday, I think you can be a minister. Wow. She said, I, I really, you know, your understanding of the Bible is, is solid and good and blah, blah, blah. And I went, oh, lady, you can you have no idea. Yeah, I've already got one foot out the door. I don't know if you realize that or not, but um, 
But in, in any case, I, that popped into my head when you because later when I was writing songs, I was thinking, oh, I hope I'm not being too overbearing. I hope I'm not, you know, I hope there's not too much fire and brimstone in this, <laughs> uh, in this, you know, uh, sermon that I'm delivering from the pulpit. And I do, I do think that some people found triumph a little too pedantic. You know, mm. this fight the good fight, never surrender, hold on to your dreams, you know, this kind of stuff. But I do feel like it was also, that was the plank in the triumph platform that really made it solid in the sense of where did we connect with the audience in the seats? You know, exactly. like what was it that made triumph be triumph? It called itself that by God. What kind of band calls itself triumph? Triumph of what? You know? Triumph of the will? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> you know? But I, so I think triumph of the human spirit, triumph of the, you know, triumph of your own self-empowerment. Like before there was self-help, Rick's right. making air quotes again, <laughs> you know, there was, you know, uh, motivation and inspiration to offer yes. in music. And that's one of the things I wanted to do. Yeah. But it was rare. It didn't, you know, we'll go back to the bands that I had named previously. That didn't happen in those bands. I, I think it was what made us stand apart from those bands. And I think in the end, that was the good thing for trying. Uh, having said that, I'm not so sure the other two guys in the band felt the same way. Like, I think if, if at the US Festival, I think if, if Gil had maybe had his druthers, mm -hmm. Triumph would have been something that really did fit in with Ozzy and Judas and right. Priest and, and, and Scorpions and, you know, Motley Crue, that yeah. Triumph fit right in there mm -hmm. because we had the big show and we were this, you know, rock band of, of uh, we were the rock and roll machine, you yeah. know. And I get that. I understand that. Yeah, that wasn't where I lived, you know. No. That wasn't where I fancied myself <laughs> making my daily bread. <laughs> See, that, that's the crux of this book. You know, you, you relinquish the title of the rock star and you almost kind of, you know, there's little clues along the way. Ordinary Man is a great one off the top of my head. In the book, you, you actually say, I think, you're kind of inhabiting the persona of a rock star because that's what you did and you had to do to a degree. But Ordinary Man, there were these little clues along the way that you weren't really, you know, a rock star per se, like someone like Tommy Lee would be or whoever else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that whole thing of larger than life or smaller than life. Mm -hmm. I wish I could have thought of a better word. <laughs> smaller than, you know, certain kinds of realities. Like, to go back to something you said earlier, you said, well, you know, I, I don't, I'm not comfortable calling myself a rock star. In one way, that's true. In another way, no, I, I'll, I'll own it. Like, I own it, you know. And in a way, I need to own it in order to be able to put it on the cover of the book in order to try and sell the books. You know, I mean, I'm sitting here now talking to you because we're hoping to try and sell the book. And most of the time we've been talking about Triumph, even though we know Triumph is only one small chapter in this whole big book, you know. So th there's a perspective, right? Yes. Rockstar is all automatically larger than life. You yeah. just say the, 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 the term and the phrase and boom, you know, uh, Everybody has a picture of a rock star in their mind, you know, mm -hmm. and how rock stars behave and how, what rock stars are supposed to be, you know. Yep. Mick Jagger is a rock star, you know, and acts like it and yes. has had a lifestyle like it. And how many wives has he had, you know? And at 80, he's still 
you know, doing three-hour shows where he runs around like he's, you know, a 25-year-old. Awesome. Yeah, and I go, oh, not for me. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> that, wow, that, I can't live up to that kind of legendary status, you know. Um, but I did, you know, I wore the spandex pants and I jumped off the drum risers and I, you know, and I've got the knees now to prove it. You know? Oh, like, yeah. I, I, I know what it feels like to have been in that, worn those shoes, been in that role, you know. I think it helped inform the fact that um, I knew it that wasn't really who I was. You know, it was a role I could play. So in the same way that maybe an actor mm -hmm. has talent and their talent leads them to having this life. Like I was watching a thing the other night on TV and it was uh, Ryan Gosling was playing piano in La La Land, you know, mm -hmm. and I don't know how they did that. They must've got, that must be some sort of digital magic because his hands are doing things that only an incredibly virtuosic jazz player could do. Oh. So I'm thinking, how is that even possible? Mm. But nevertheless, he must have a certain modicum of talent to be able to, to, to pull that off. Mm -hmm. And some of it is him indeed, you know, doing his thing. Ryan Gosling's not a piano player. He's not a jazz artist. He's right. a, he's an actor, and he inhabits these things. He dances. He, he he's Ken in a Ken and Barbie movie. You know, exactly. like he can become what he decides he's going to take his talent and do. Mm -hmm. So as a musician, I was able to sort of see that and go, yeah, I I can do this. You know, I can I can make this happen. It's not who I am. Who I am is always distinct from what I do. I mean, actors complain about it all the time. They're walking, you know, the guy from uh, Seinfeld is walking down the street and people are going, hey, you know, they're, they're yelling, oh, who was the guy in the glasses? Oh, uh, Newman. No, yeah, yeah, Newman, but no, the other guy that was his pal. George? George. Yeah. They go, hey, Costanza. Yeah, right. And he goes, yeah, I'm not, I'm not Costanza, I'm not but Costanza. hello, yes, great, <laughs> you know. People will know you for what you do. They're not going to know you for who you are. Only the people that really spend time with you and, and, and your friends, your family, they're, they're going to know who you are. Mm -hmm. uh, other folks are just going to know what you do. So that's one of the things in the book that I sort of try to get people to see and understand and even apply to their own lives. You'll be judged by the things that you do, you know, by others who don't know you. Mm -hmm. you know, but so what do you want those folks to Think about you. Who, who do you want? Who do you want them to think you are? So then there has to become this marriage of who you actually are. And I used to teach this in business class to the students all the time. You're gonna, you know, image. You'll have to decide. You have to project something. You have to sell something. You're marketing something. But if there's not something of you that's really in there, that's integral to to what it is that you're promoting and marketing. You're not going to be comfortable. There's, you you got to put something of yourself at stake in that and go, no, I really believe in this, you know. So when you were talking earlier about Suki's Blues, we're talking about fight the good fight, you know, whatever, all that stuff. There was always that for me that I was going, no, I'm going to fight to try to make sure that I've got some of me in here. Whether you guys like it or not, you know, I, to the guys in the band, to an audience, whether you guys like it or not. I'm sorry, but I, I, I'm in this for... For me, partly, you know, yes, I'm in this for you, but I'm also in this for me. 
So there's got to be something to me here. And if you won't accept it, well, tough shit. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to do it. And of course, album sales go from being, you know, uh, the size of a, a mountain to, uh-oh, being in a little anthill. <laughs> but, you know, you go, oh, well, you know, that's that's life. That's fine. I can I can accept that too. Exactly. Yeah. And there's a great line at the end of one of the passages in the book where you say, I was able to turn the unreal into the real, which I thought was really prescient. Oh, yeah. What was what was the context for that? Do you remember? It, it was that. Oh, yeah. We're talking about the rock star persona and yeah. you know, how things are sometimes not real, but, you know, the image versus reality. One of the things that um, I used to really like about being with Mike and Gil was that we all shared the same kind of sense of humor. We all recognized the surreal nature of what it was that we were chasing and, mm. and, and doing, you know, and how it could go from, you know, amazing to horrible <laughs> in an instant, <laughs> you know. And it reminds me of uh, Lifeson. Alex Lifeson and Rush might have said something once where he was talking about the rush getting together after a long hiatus or something and getting together for rehearsals and sitting down. And it might've been Neil that said it might've been Alex. I'm not sure, but one of them sort of said, Oh, we're the worst rush copy cover band I've ever heard. <laughs> so even, you know, a band that had pretty high standards, yeah. you know, I mean, sometimes it's the wheels have come off and it's, it's, it's just lousy. It's just not very good. You know, and I love that they were sort of, you know, revealing that in that story, that anecdote. Gillen and, and Mike and I, we, we always did have that ability to kind of laugh at ourselves privately, even though, you know, up on stage when it was going on, it was like, we are larger than life. We are the gods of hell and fire. Wasn't that? I'm thinking of a, I'm not going to remember the name of the artist, but he had a song like, fire. Da -da -da, it'll make you burn, but da -da -da, don't fire. Name Arthur Brown. Yeah! yeah, yeah. And I think he's there was a you know like a weird oh, little yeah. at the beginning of the song. Yeah. I am the god of hell and fire, and That's I right. bring you fire. Da -da -da. Right. <laughs> it's like so bizarre. Oh, yeah, Arthur Brown, the crazy world of Arthur Brown. You yeah. know who really loved that guy? No. Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden. Oh, yeah? And they kind of almost adopted that shtick to a degree, right? Yeah, yeah. The whole fire and brimstone thing, yeah. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah Triumph didn't go that far, but, you know, certainly we had an element of that. I mean, we oh, were yeah. one of the only bar bands on the planet Earth that had a flamethrower. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we had a propane torch that could shoot balls of flame right up into the air. We set off a few sprinklers <laughs> in our day. <laughs> Do you want to hear a story about that? Yes, please. Okay, so we're playing the Blackhawk Motor Inn in Richmond Hill. Oh, God. Yeah, but, but it was not It was kind of nice. It was a basement thing, and it had uh, carpeting, and, and um, it had little areas that had couches and, and easy chairs and, and coffee tables, as well as being a bar. So it was kind of a classy joint. Okay. But we were in there, and, and uh, yeah, our flamethrower went off, and, and uh, it you know, the, those kind of sprinkler systems that have the little cogged wheel, yes. which is essentially, there's like, I think like a little thing of wax or something that's in it. And if it melts, then off it goes, right? Yeah. Some, some, something trips in it. And so, and <laughs> mm -hmm. 
if if that sprinkler system hasn't run since its inception, the water that's going to come out in the initial stages is going to be black with the rust and the grime and the crap that's been in the pipes, you know, that's collected in the pipes. So it when 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 our thing shot off the sprinklers, the every the girls' dresses were ruined and, uh, and you know like black tarry crap yeah. on on the carpets and the things, and you know meanwhile we're beating a hasty retreat back to our dressing room, which is a room in the motor inn in the motel, and we're thinking, oh no, this guy the owner's going to kill us, yeah. you know, and I always used to uh, uh, give credit to to Mike and Gill. For when the guy came, they that he turned him the he turned they turned the guy around hmm. so that he became. Um, when I told the story in front of them or or you know raised the issue, they said, "No, no, no." When he showed up, he was actually uh, saying, "You know what? This is one of the greatest things that ever happened to me." And we, and I went, "What?" Mm-hmm. You know, and it was because the guy had been trying to get coverage in the local papers for his club. And he said, I'm going to be able to get this on the front page of the Richmond Hill Gazette or whatever the Richmond Hill newspaper is. Right. He goes, I'm going to, and you know, naturally, of course, I've got you guys over a barrel now. You owe me because you've ruined my place and I'm going to have to make insurance claims. I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to do that. But you're going to have to come back next Thursday night to play. And then two weeks after that, you're coming on a Saturday night. And I'm only going to pay you this amount of money because, you know, so he cut his own deal, but we became sort of like, you know, Triumph takes over Richmond Hill in that month. Yeah. So there was this thing of Triumph being able to take the most absurd, surreal thing, and then somehow it would turn around and it would become, this is golden. This is, you know, how did this happen? We're great. But part of that was because... You know, Mike and Gil did have that kind of creative ambition, mm-hmm. that that vision to be able to see how they could make those things kind of happen, you know. In that sense, it was a very good synergy, right? Because the book talks about this a little bit, too, is that those guys were very, you know, more so at least business minded. You were more of an artist. They were focused on the business aspect and the growth of that business through things like flamethrowers and light shows and bombast. Yeah, that was all Gil. That was all Gil. No, Mike had this ability to uh, uh, apply that to uh, radio and mm. promotion and and marketing. And then in his dealings with the record company, Mike was a guy that would take sort of Gil's attitude that lived in that world of production and booking agents and that side of the band. And then this other world that was you know, marketing and radio and, 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 you know, sales of records and record stores and that whole side of things. Yeah. Uh, Mike had a, had a real strength and a gift for that. So yeah, you know, for us on the, on the table, as the things got divided, it was like, okay, Rick, you know, you come up with the creative stuff, you know, so what should the album cover look like? You know, now not all the time because there were times where the other guys would say, "Hey, I haven't done an album cover for you know in six albums, so is can it be my turn? Let me do one." And you go, "Okay, you know." So that's interesting. Like, how did that work? I, yeah, well, I think that was just a question of uh, sometimes egos would get to a certain point, and then somebody would say, "Hey, you know, I, I want to." So, the, like the Sport of Kings record, I, I had already started checking out. 
Yeah. And Mike kind of became a guy in the driver's seat for that album cover design with MCA and with the record company. Right. And I always felt like if you let the record company have too much input, you were heading to do, towards disaster. Absolutely. Um, but of course, that was the way I had been weaned. <laughs> you know, that, that's how I'd been taught from the from the early stages yeah. by those guys. You know, so yeah. it was kind of weird when the tables turned. But anyhow, see now I'm thinking, and I think that people who are listening to this are also thinking this, or Triumph fans, they're going through the records. So who is responsible for what? Yeah, so like progressions of power. Who is responsible for that? Uh, yeah, that was more um, Gil. That was his record. Okay. Kind of because yeah. he wanted to sing the singles and and he felt like the Just a Game album had been very much Rick, you yes. know that cover those songs that had been very much a Rick album. That was your cover. Then. So Progressions was going to be a Gill album and and that cover got shot in the RCA building in New York if I remember correctly. Wow. So and it was very much a thing of RCA saying. Let's do a thing where it's kind of going to be like the Beatles. Remember, meet the Beatles in half in shadow, half That's in light. Right. So it was going to be kind of one of those kinds of things. Except, I think Gill's idea was with lasers. <laughs> so the three faces with lasers shooting. Yeah. I had that. I told you this a long time ago. You probably don't remember. I had that eight track when I was a kid. Oh yeah. When I would stare at that cover, you know, as like an eight-year-old, nine-year-old kid. Yeah, I was listening to to Just a Game on the way over. I love that record. I think it's great. Like Allied Forces is my favorite, and I think it's yours as well. But yeah, I, if I could, my combination would be a, a little bit of Just a Game and a little bit of Allied Forces, and I would make you know a, a greatest hits oh. out of that. And I would go, these were my finest moments. Although you know, there's finest moments that you know, uh, and I don't say this because I'm trying to say I had incredibly fine moments, you know, constantly. But some things get lost in the shuffle. And we, we talk about progressions of power. Mm -hmm. uh, a fan reminded me and they said, hey, when's the last time you listened to In the Night? You should listen to In the Night off progressions of power because that's an unbelievable vocal and guitar performance. Mm. And I go, well, I haven't listened to that in like, you know, 30 years. Okay, yeah. I'll give it a listen. And I, and I went, wow, like... How did I ever sing so high? <laughs> like yeah. I can't believe that I would have given myself a, a, a vocal to try and capture with those notes in it. You know, like yikes! Oh, it was yeah. crazy. So, and there were like the last album we made, uh, Surveillance. Yeah, there was stuff on there where like I got to play with Steve Morse. Mm -hmm. And and uh, we did some co-writing, and there's a th thing where he and I wrote a thing, sort of all the King's Horses, yeah. and it leads into Carry On the Flame, and Carry On the Flame is a song that's in that mold of Hold On to Your Dreams, Fight the Good Fight, Never Surrender, you know, uh, the like a motivational, inspirational, Why Are We Here kind of song, you know, and I felt like that song it just disappeared kind of off the planet you know mm. back to our thing where we were saying about the book that doesn't get read <laughs> you know like there's no legacy there because not enough folks you know found their way to it in order to make it become evergreen and you need that if that doesn't happen you're as an artist you're not you know you're not going to survive you know true yeah but you know all the songs that you did name will yeah uh I, you know, I'm still coming to terms with that in my mind. Mm. Um, 
the whole idea of how evergreen will evergreen actually be, you know, especially because in my life now, I mostly listen to classical music and, and jazz music and, you know, I'm going, you know, Miles and, and Bill Evans, are, they're not going anywhere, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Mozart and Beethoven and they're, they're not going anywhere, you know, they're going to be around forever, you know, and here's, here's one. Okay. I was just reading on my, uh, Newsfeed, yeah. Mar Marty Scorsese wrote something about Robbie Robertson. Yeah. And so it's a eulogy kind of, you know, m memorial kind of thing. And he said they were in some place, there was a gallery, you know, I think they were in France or something, and they'd been walking around looking at masters, like mm -hmm. just unbelievable. Maybe it was Italy, I don't know, but whatever, you know. And they lost track of each other, and then they found each other again, and Robertson was sitting on a stoop outside when he came out the in the, and he walked down he stood in front of Robbie Robertson and Robbie Robertson looked at him and he said we're bums <laughs> <laughs> and Scorsese goes I know I know we're bums yeah. you know so I think there's a perspective there you know where I've had a, a, a nice taste I've had more of a taste than maybe I even deserved certainly more of a taste than most folks get but Come on, I didn't have anywhere near the taste Paul McCartney's had, Elton John has had, you know. Yeah. And when it comes to the world of guitar players, come on, man, I can name 50 of them that are just, you know, and Rick is now gesturing far above his own head. They're way above my head, you know. They're guys that are just unsurpassingly gifted and talented on a level that I'm not. So, but and I, I'm not... It's not like I'm playing the I modesty make, card here. here. I go, eh, those guys can't sing as good as me. They, see? they don't write tunes as good as I did, you know. And so I, my thing is that I'm kind of a three-card player, you know, singer, songwriter, guitarist. Mm -hmm. And of the, th the combination of the three kind of – but combination guys don't really get the same kind of, of uh, legacy right. that – somebody that's unsurpassingly unbelievably great at one thing they become the thing that sticks you right. know uh and of course i had record company guys tell me that all my life <laughs> you know rick don't be so eclectic focus come on man you got to focus you go, yeah i'm sorry I, I i can't really focus it's not my thing think about that for a second though you think about someone like i'm just gonna off the top of my head eddie van halen otherworldly player but that's it Right. And I'm not, that's not, I'm not downplaying this. Well, I don't know. I mean, there, there were some pretty good tunes in the Van Halen catalog. Oh, and sure. I, I thought when he was teamed up with Sammy, yeah, I thought they came up with some even better ones than he'd had with David. David was a little bit too much of a kind of a yabba dabba do rock star cheerleader kind of, you yeah. know, put on a show kind of a guy. Whereas Sammy could sort of, you know, right now. Yeah. Now, like that's a pretty good tune. Like, and you know, if you think about like bump, 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 that's yeah. a amazing keyboard riff. Yeah. And that's writing. That's that's Eddie's writing. You right. know, on a keyboard. Yeah. And you go, okay, I can't do that. <laughs> like, I can't write on a keyboard. I can't. You know, some guys are are adept at. And so Eddie was, you know, so you got to give him some. Oh, no, don't get me wrong. He's maybe my favorite. However. Can't say he's good to me. No. <laughs> <laughs> the, the point, maybe that was a bad choice, but the point, no, no, the, no. The point it, I was going to make. Yes, it's is a good point. When, when somebody is so 
recognized intensely for being so good at that one thing, they don't have those other two things. I know, but... But you've got... So it's, this is kind of... It, it's hard to, to, to present to you, but like think about that. So songwriting, singing, guitar playing, those three things, you didn't just do capably. You did way above average in terms of you know capability and skill. So maybe you're not Eddie Van Halen, who is really... Can you name another person who was an amazing songwriter, an amazing singer, and was up there, and we talked about this in the tag of like Fight the Good Fight, up there with Geddy Lee in terms of like high notes, and an amazing guitar player. You sell yourself short. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, I, I can name some, sure. You know, like uh, Paul McCartney was always a hero of mine, and I think that McCartney is one of the world's best musicians. Mm -hmm. Because he has the ability, you know, I mean, he's in his 80s now. I'm, I'm not sure he can sing the way he used to. None of us can. <laughs> Said the guy who's been doing an interview now for about 40 minutes and his throat <laughs> is almost gone. Um, yeah, I mean, just to speak to the point a little bit more. Um, one of my favorite guitarists in, you know, history was Jeff Beck. Mm -hmm. And Beck is a guy that was capable of playing finger style kind of jazz, mm -hmm. but he never did. Never made records where he did it. But if you search around on YouTube, you can find this little moment where he's got a strat in his hand and a guy's interviewing him and, and Jeff goes, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he, he plays like mm -hmm. this little passage and you go, oh, wow, that's incredible. Like he's never done that on record. Mm -hmm. You know, he never, he does because his thing is Jeff goes, no, I'm going to make the guitar talk i'm gonna make a guitar sing it's gonna be my voice you know i'm not gonna sing and he always hated the fact that he'd had a hit record in england i can't remember what it was called it was something stupid like hi-ho hip-hop here we go or <laughs> it was something stupid like that that's not what it was but it was something like that and uh you know it, it, he uh, for his whole life he kept trying to avoid it until finally he went okay okay I'll do it. I'll I'll play it live. Mm. You know, you can make a video and you can put it on YouTube. But he 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 didn't want to be a pop guy. He wanted to be seen as the you know this true sort of guitar legend that he really was. And he focused himself mm -hmm. intentionally so so that he played just on that strat. He he played just this kind of stuff with this kind of technique that he'd specialized in incredibly specialized technique, mm -hmm. which there's nobody else on the planet earth that can do it. You know, only he could. And now if anybody did, they'd go, well, you're just a pale imitation of Jeff Beck, you know? So there's no point in doing it because Jeff Beck already did it as good as it could ever be done. I won't, my legacy will not be in that category. You know, it won't. I can live with that. However, once my memoir has sold seven million copies, now you're talking. <laughs> then people will say, you know, there weren't a lot of rock stars that then became novelists of that. <laughs> Poet laureates. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now, as we often do, we're doing a two-parter. This is the end of part one. Oh, okay. So yabba dabba do. We are surrounded by guitars. Yes. Uh, in the second part, will you be playing one of them? 
yeah, we'll we'll see. <laughs> Wait, I I need to take my drugs. <laughs> so let's take a break. You can take your yeah. drugs. Yeah, and then we will come back. We're going to talk about uh, possibly some triumph surprises, possibly, well, not possibly for sure. Uh, all the instrumental work you've been doing and working up. Yes, great, good, and then some of your other projects as well, and, and maybe you'll play a guitar. Beauty, yeah, all I right. can do that. Yeah, awesome. thank you for part one. This has been fun. But no, it has. I love this. Yeah. Thank this you. Is, here we here we go again. Another year, another t- That's two right. episodes. It's not even Christmas. <laughs> All right. All right. We'll see you. We'll see you in a couple of clicks, folks. Yes. All right. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen. My very special guest, Mr. Rick Emmett. Well, like some folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.